And meanwhile, this polarization just makes it impossible to imagine that some kind of sensible reform of American higher education might pass at the federal level or even in most states anytime soon. Welcome to another episode of America Explained. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. In this podcast, I bring you an international perspective on the foreign policy and politics of the United States. If you enjoy America Explained, please check out our newsletter, which goes out a couple of times a month. You can find a link to it in the show notes for this episode. And if you go there right now, you can read a new post that I just put up analyzing the Biden administration's national security strategy, which was published just last week. In this episode, though, we're looking a bit closer to home, and today we're going to talk about the student debt crisis in the United States and the wider topic of university education and why this has become a politically polarizing issue. In August, the Biden administration announced that it was going to forgive federal student loans up to $20,000 per borrower. Now, this had been one of Biden's campaign promises, but a lot of people didn't think that it was going to come to fruition. The policy has a lot of critics on the right who naturally don't like what they see as an unfunded giveaway to people who are generally not their constituents. But it also had critics among centrist Democrats who worried that it undermined the Biden administration's message that it was cutting deficits and getting inflation under control. But I think the fact that the administration went forward with this policy and that it did so just before the midterms shows that the administration was focused on trying to mobilize younger and more progressive voters in advance of those elections that take place just a few weeks from now. But regardless of the immediate politics of this decision, it's also a really interesting thing to look at just to understand the underlying issue here, which is why is it that American colleges and universities are so expensive compared to the rest of the developed world? So expensive that it's often actually difficult for people outside of the US to grasp just how in debt you need to get to go to university in America. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today, how this crisis of costs has got so bad, how severe the student debt crisis which has led to is, and what Biden's announcement means economically and actually for American politics as well, in which education has become one of the key polarizing lines that separates the parties from one another. So to start at the beginning, why is it that university education is so expensive in America? Well, in the US, there's actually quite a lot of different four-year higher education institutions. So there's public universities, which receive both state and federal funding. These are places like the University of California system or Ohio State University, to take a couple of examples. Then there are also private non-profit universities, places like Harvard and Stanford, but also much, much smaller liberal arts colleges, that you know, of which there are thousands of which you've never heard of. Finally, there are private for-profit universities and then also community colleges, which are public institutions that offer something less than a less than a bachelor's degree. It's called an associate's degree or certificates that you need to find a job in certain fields. Now, three quarters of undergraduates in the US are attending public universities, which are actually the least expensive type of institution. But still, it can be very, very expensive to go to these public universities, especially if you do it out of state. So if you go to a public institution in your own state, then you get generally a lower rate of tuition. But if you go out of state, you pay more. 
And compared to many other countries, even this in-state tuition is not affordable for many families. So just to take a couple of examples, on one end of the spectrum, a student from Florida who attends a four-year public university in Florida would pay on average about 4,500 in tuition a year, and about 15,000 if you include other costs you know, that go along with being at, being at college. That's still a lot of money. But in Vermont, by contrast, a student doing the same thing, paying in-state tuition at a public university, pays about $17,000 per year, and nearly $30,000 when you account for these other costs. And meanwhile, at private non-profit universities that many students also attend, students pay on average three times as much of this. So even an out-of-state public tuition is nearly 25% less expensive than at private universities. And so even though it varies a lot by state and, and region, the cost of tuition and fees at these private universities is about $38,000 a year. That's excluding other costs, like the fact that you've got to rent a room and you've got to pay for food and you've got to pay for books and things like that. Now, university education in the US hasn't always been this expensive. If you, you know, take inflation out of the equation, tuition costs have grown about 750% since the 1960s. So that means that tuition costs have increased at a higher rate than any other good or service in the US economy, except for hospital care, which actually, you know, medical bills have been the other or another really big contributor to this cost of living crisis that the middle class have faced in America for decades now, even going back before the great financial crisis. The cost of keeping your family healthy and giving them a good education has just become so much more expensive in America. And that's led to this enormous ballooning in debt that we see as well, particularly pe for people to pay for their children to go to university. So, you know, the question becomes, well, why have costs gone up so quickly and, and in a way that's so out of whack to developments in the rest of the economy? A lot of studies have looked at this question and they have different answers for it. Some have said that there's basically a supply side reason for this, that in the aftermath of the Great Recession, when states faced this kind of new era of austerity in their budgets, that they found cutting down on the amount of tax money that they gave to universities was a relatively easy place to make cuts without that many people necessarily noticing. Cutting funding for universities also had a lot of ideological appeal to especially Republican state legislators or legislators who represented districts that have a population that doesn't have many people with bachelor's degrees. You know, the median state legislator is way to the right on the political spectrum of the median college professor or the median head of a university. And just many, many particularly Republican state legislators view universities as kind of these vectors of cultural and intellectual contamination that in some way the country might be better off without. So again, this was ideologically was an easy target for them because it was seen as taking money away from this kind of pampered, politically out of touch elite institution. This new era in university funding created a kind of new economics of higher education, and it particularly led many universities, even public universities, to really place an emphasis on attracting international students who they could charge a really high premium for tuition. 
But then if you want to attract a lot of international students, then you need to do things that, that appeal to that set of people and don't necessarily do what's best for the domestic student. So one thing that happened was that universities became much more focused on improving their ranking in international rankings of universities. And in order to do that, they had to add flashy services that improve student life, decrease student to faculty ratios and things like this. And it meant spending a lot more money on extra services in the hope that this would lead to more students coming in. But what it often did was it just bloated the number of administrators who worked at the university you know, led them to spend loads of money on building fancy new dorms and cafeterias and, you know, sports fields and things like this that were actually very expensive and, and didn't necessarily have an immediate payoff for most students, but actually led tuition fees to increase overall in order to pay for all of this stuff. Now, it's a bit easy though to blame increased tuition costs on things like universities hosting lobster dinners and having fancy dining halls and luxury gyms. And also uh, another piece of the puzzle that you have to take into account here is what's happening to grants and financial aid. Because actually the, the sticker price of tuition is actually rarely the price that comes out of students and their families' pockets. Many US students receive some kind of financial aid through grants or scholarships, some of which are merit-based and some of which are need-based. Right-wing politicians have come up with this idea that they call the Bennett Hypothesis, where they say basically that because there's increased government aid that's provided to tuition, this artificially raises the price of tuition higher than it would otherwise be. And there is some evidence that this is true. They also point to what they call the golden ticket fallacy, which argues that students overestimate the value that certain degrees will bring them. But, I mean, this is a little bit of a, of a difficult thing to prove or, or, or really to argue because students have been told for decades that a college degree is the ticket to success in the modern economy. And the fact that students who have degrees do tend to get higher wages shows that there is actually a direct correlation between do, having a university education and doing well in the American labor market. This is true in fields like engineering, the STEM fields that are particularly favored by right-wing politicians, but it's also true across all fields. Anybody who gets a bachelor's degree has a higher rate of employment and earns significantly more than those who only have a secondary school diploma. And so this has just led many, many more people to want to go to universities, and it's led in America in the same, you know, the same things happen in Europe as well towards what we sometimes call the massification of higher education. Just this movement from a model where going to university was something that only a small elite group of people did to being something that a huge portion of the population and, and many more aspire to do. Because at the same time, America is not willing to fund its university system to the degree that's necessary in order to support all of these students going to school, skyrocketing tuition was the natural consequence of this. At the same time, even though some politicians like Bernie Sanders have suggested putting a cap on tuition, which would then require much higher tax funding in order to make up for that shortfall, that this also is just not something that's politically feasible in the US right now. So. As so often in American politics and the American economy, basically people are left to fend for themselves against this system and to suffer the consequences rather than some kind of public solution been found. 
You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. So into this situation stepped a kind of stopgap measure, something that wasn't going to solve any of these underlying problems in the higher education system, but was supposed to give at least some relief to some borrowers. And that was the idea of student debt relief. Total outstanding student debt in the US right now is about $1.7 trillion, which is about 7% of total US economic output in any given year. That's distributed over about 43 million people, and the vast majority of those people own federal loans. So the average federal debt per borrower is about $37,000, and that places student debt in the highest category of debt after mortgages. And that's particularly remarkable when you consider how student debt might also be preventing a lot of young people from getting on the property ladder. When, you know, when they do get on the property ladder, they're going to face these enormous problems with, with sky-high house prices and, and now high mortgage rates. So student debt is is something now that so many young Americans have to deal with and kind of get off their plate and get down to a sustainable level before they can actually start their life and start engaging in these other big financial events like marriage and like home ownership and like having children. Students don't have to pay these loans while they're studying, but many of them actually still accrue interest during this period. They also accrue interest if the borrowers go into deferment or forbearance due to a lack of sufficient income. So this is part of the reason why in many cases, even years after taking out these loans, borrowers owe more than they borrowed, even if they've been consistently paying it back from the beginning. Now, I got to tell you, just to kind of place this in some kind of international perspective, how different this was to my student loan experience in Britain. So when I left university, my student loan debt was about, I think about somewhere in the region of 10 to 20,000 pounds, but the rules to do with repaying it were just, uh, were just so loose. So firstly, it didn't accrue any interest. Secondly, if I wasn't working, then it was just pay- placed on hold. There was a freeze on it. I didn't have to repay it. And then if I left Britain, which I actually eventually did to go and work abroad, then also the repayment of it was frozen. So uh, these were just such kind of liberal rules on repayment. It was more like, you know, repaying a student loan in the UK was more kind of like a tax that you paid retrospectively on having gone to university. And if you were no longer earning enough to pay that, or if you were no longer a UK taxpayer, then you didn't have to pay the loan anymore. American student loans are just much, much more like a predatory commercial transaction that exists between the borrower and the federal government. This burden is also disproportionately felt by students from middle-income families who don't have family reasons to pay full tuition, but also don't qualify for a larger amount of government grant and support. So again, this is really, although it, it of course it affects poorer Americans to some extent, it really, really badly affects middle-class Americans though. So this student debt crisis, it's a broad middle-class issue. It has economic and racial justice components to it. And for this reason, many Democrats have faced pressure from the public and, and from other more progressive politicians to do something about it. 
And that's why in August, the Biden administration announced that it would forgive up to $10,000 of federal student loans for Americans making less than $125,000 a year and up to $20,000 for borrowers who came from lower income families. So this is going to effectively cancel student debt for about 20 million borrowers in America. Now, last Friday, though a federal appeals court temporarily blocked the implementation of this program, it's deciding on motions from several states, obviously Republican-led states, that have aimed to block the policy. So we don't know how that's going to pan out yet and whether this policy will even be able to go ahead. But the fact that the Biden administration tried to do it is something that's really unprecedented, which is actually kind of surprising because this policy does have pretty wide support in the US. Over half of Americans who are polled say that they support Biden's policy of canceling 10,000 per person. And nearly half actually supported a more radical proposal by Elizabeth Warren to cancel up to $50,000 worth of student debt per person. So some people oppose it, of course, as well. About 31% are completely opposed to student debt cancellation. And of course, they're much, much more likely to be Republicans. But within the Democratic coalition, this has been a firmly popular policy for a long time. And it seems that it's mostly popular among the general public as well. On the other hand, a lot of Americans do have questions about loan forgiveness and particularly how it will be paid for. Many are also worried about the potential negative inflationary effects. So there's also this kind of common trope you get of people who either attended university and paid off all of their loans or who didn't attend university at all and now feel that they're essentially been told to pay off the loans of people who were richer than them, you know, more kind of socially and culturally elite than them, or seem to be that way at least, and went to expensive private schools. And, you know, in, in extreme versions of this trope, you imagine people went and got, say, a degree in art history from Harvard, and now plumbers are having to pay for that degree. So there's this whole kind of class element to this as well that that is really important, particularly because educational polarization has become so important in American politics. To talk about the inflationary aspects of this a little bit, this policy does doubtless increase the U.S. deficit. At this point, that's estimated to be about a $400 billion increase in the deficit. Now, if you increase the deficit in that way, then in the future, you are going to have to pay that back or either by decreasing spending or by increasing taxes. So in this way, paying for this policy will definitely fall on U.S. taxpayers at some point in the future. The inflationary aspect of this is is kind of a little bit more complicated so most economists agree that debt forgiveness is going to have some effect by increasing spending and and that will increase inflation but the effect is going to be fairly minimal at least in the short term this policy doesn't immediately put a large sum of money in people's pockets like for instance the stimulus checks did earlier in the pandemic But instead, it just eases people's financial situation over a period of a number of years, which means that the impact of that is spread out over a number of years. But having, you know, not too big of an impact is not the same as having no impact. And indeed, many of the people who have championed this measure for a long time used to champion it as a way of achieving economic stimulus. And they've now kind of retreated from that message quite quickly and and said, okay, the stimulatory effect would be quite small. 
but actually there is going to be an effect and you can't get away from that you know and the, the politics of that is actually quite difficult for the Biden administration given the fact that inflation is such a big issue in American politics right now. But perhaps the most important criticism of this one-time debt forgiveness is that actually it alone is not really doing anything to address the root of the problem. So students taking out loans now or in the future are not guaranteed that their debt will be forgiven, and nothing is stopping universities from further increasing tuition prices. And you can actually see how this policy could worsen that moral hazard that, that currently exists, where basically universities can keep putting up tuition costs because now they might have this expectation or the borrowers might have an expectation that at some point their student debt is going to be forgiven. So what does it matter if they take out an extra 10 or 25 or $50,000 in student debt? So this is really a, a one-off measure. It's not a deep structural change. It seems, as far as Biden is concerned, to be mainly motivated by the immediate political impact that it might have and the political help that it might give him at the midterms. And sadly, given the state of polarization and gridlock in American politics right now and this kind of troubled and controversial place that universities have in national culture right now, it's really hard to see how some kind of structural reform can take place anytime in the near future. So this is kind of a something that we see in American politics a lot at the moment, that presidents engage in these kind of one-off executive actions to put a sticking plaster on such, some much deeper structural problem because the country is just not capable of coming together to structurally solve that problem and come up with a systemic solution. And so in that respect, you know, this is in some ways kind of a depressing moment because it makes you realize how little headroom there is to actually make a, a really deep-seated, long-lasting reform of the university sector and put it on a more stable footing that enables in the future, future generations of Americans to get a college education and not have to pay an arm and a leg for it. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy, and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. Now, the politics of this issue really can't be separated from this larger trend of educational polarization that we see right now in America. Right now, the biggest dividing line between Democrats and Republicans is not income, but education. More and more of lesser educated voters are flocking to the Republicans, embracing the Republican Party and the way that it champions particular cultural and racial beefs that, that these people have. And more and more higher educated Americans are flocking to the Democrats who are seen as the party of expertise and technocracy and meritocracy and progress. This makes our current era of American politics very different to the era in the second half of the 20th century, when voters without college degrees were more likely to vote Democratic than they were Republican, and vice versa. And that has inevitably affected how this issue has been framed and, and led to this resentment towards the fact that so much of this debt forgiveness will go towards people who went to university and, you know, even went to get the most expensive degrees at the fanciest private universities. So 
the Biden administration points out that 90% of the student debt relief is going to benefit people who are making less than $75,000 per year, and that is a powerful argument, but because politics is not currently polarized by income so much as it is by education, that's actually not a super powerful argument to many people because it, you know, they are not necessarily thinking about income brackets, but they're thinking about this through the cultural lens of who are the, quote, people like them. And even a very successful self-made man or woman who didn't go to university and, like, founded a small business somewhere in Toledo is still not going to feel very great about this money going even to poorer people who they don't see as sharing their cultural and ideological values. So this identity politics and the way that educational polarization has interacted with that means that this is just a tremendously controversial issue and it's really ripe to just feed into the pre-existing polarizations in American politics. Another aspect of this is the fact that whether you have an educational or not is, is linked due to this polarization to basically how liberal or conservative you are. And people tend to think that actually college makes you become more progressive and more liberal. This is one reason why lawmakers in red or purple states, places like Florida or Georgia or Mississippi, see attacking universities as a way of actually kind of cutting down the political opposition. Because, you know, a state university that is in the middle of a big blue city somewhere in a red state is seen by Republican politicians as representing their enemy. It generates liberal voters who are then going to, you know, graduate and vote against those Republicans. And it's believed to inculcate particular values to do with meritocracy and belief in scientific expertise and belief in technical expertise, which right now is very, very contrary to what the Republican Party in, in this kind of populist, crazy incarnation that it's in at the moment is all about. Now, it's not actually really true that college makes people more liberal. Often the people that go to college are more left-leaning to begin with, and maybe they become slightly more so during their studies, but it's definitely not like there's any evidence that college is kind of, you know, inputting farm boys with, with down-home American values from backwards Mississippi and then spitting out, you know, latte-sipping liberals. But nevertheless, this is how the, the issue gets framed. And over time, this has come to permeate how Americans on the left and the right actually view higher education. So according to research from Pew in 2018, over half of Americans believe that higher education is going in the wrong direction. And while both Republicans and Democrats point to rising tuition as part of the problem, Republicans tend to think that there's actually much more at stake here and there are many more problems. Over three quarters of the Republicans who were surveyed in this poll also said that they believe that their professors bring their liberal political views into the classroom, that they create this kind of environment of cancel culture where students, as particularly conservative students, are not allowed to see, say what they really believe. 
and that these degrees are focused more on inculcating liberal values than they are on actually preparing a workforce that's going to contribute to American prosperity in the future. And we're seeing increasingly in red states, particularly those that have ambitious governors like Florida, Ron DeSantis there has been really critical of universities recently. He's tried to crack down on them in various ways. In Georgia, there's a controversy over these attempts to weaken tenure protections for academics, which might make it more easily to fire tenured faculty. And there seems to be just this general trend of Republicans more and more, not just actually criticizing universities, but also trying to use the power of the state to change the way that, that universities operate and take away some of the freedoms that universities have generally enjoyed. So it just seems to be another example of something that's so depressingly common in American politics right now, which is Republicans just using these kind of broad identity-based attacks on institutions that they don't like and, and proposing this as a solution to what ails the working classes and struggling folks in America, rather than actually doing an objective economic analysis of the problems that exist here and taking material action that helps the working and the middle classes. And sadly, if the Democrats lose control of Congress a few weeks from now during the midterms, then we can just expect to see more and more of this kind of policy agenda put in front of the American people, more and more of these kind of attacks on higher educational institutions. And that means America's really, really going to suffer. And meanwhile, this polarization just makes it impossible to imagine that some kind of sensible reform of American higher education might pass at the federal level or even in most states anytime soon. So hey, thanks for listening to America Explained again. I hope you enjoyed it. Please tell a friend if you did and help us grow. And we're going to be back a few weeks from now with our midterms coverage. I'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to America Explained, which is brought to you by host Andy Gawthor and researcher, editorial assistant, and sometimes co-host Catherine Wood. If you like America Explained, please consider checking out our free newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. That's all for this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.